morning. <clears throat> happy, uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads. I was really uh, looking forward um, to the weekend, and then I was uh, at the mall um, on Friday uh, with Sam, and a woman there referred to me as Sam's grandfather. And uh, it, uh, I'm not going to lie, it bothered me. Um, I'm, I'm just going to be totally straight with you. It, it really got under my skin. So, uh, and, and here we are two days later still talking about it, but, uh, you know, so, uh, hey, in, in all seriousness, happy, happy Father's Day. I, I came across, uh, this list this week of, uh, things, uh, a dad would never say that you'll never hear, you know, a dad say, it's okay to be late, curfews only a suggestion. Uh, you'll never hear a dad say, well, how about that? I'm lost. I would say it's about time we got directions. Uh, you'll never hear a dad say, here, why don't you hold the remote control for a while? Um, and uh, I want to be sensitive because I remember a few years ago, I think I've told you this story before. I remember talking to a dad and uh, we were talking about his plans for the weekend. And I knew he was a Christian and stuff. He didn't mention going to church. And so being a preacher, I kind of asked somebody, he said, I never go to church on Father's Day. And I said, what, what do you mean you never go to church on Father's Day? And he said, well... Like Mother's Day, it's like rah, 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 encouragement and all that. And then like Father's Day, it's like we're just busting on dads the, the whole the whole morning about how you need to be a better man. You need to do this. You need to do that. And uh, I've always been really sensitive uh, to, to that issue. Now, if, if you're a dad that feels that way, I want you to know right off the bat, like I don't have a Father's Day message today, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but I did want to pause before we get into our message and I want to say thank you to all of you who are loving and investing. Um, we, our, our culture needs more dads. And so to all of our dads here that are loving and investing and dialed in and all that stuff, uh, we just want to say thank you. Uh, at the end of service, we have a bag of popcorn for you uh, to thank you for the job you're doing. We thought you'd rather have uh, something to eat than just something else to take home. So um, I, maybe that's just a me thing, but actually now that I think about it. Um, but uh, the worship team organized that and, and got some popcorn. Now, before we get into the message, I, I don't want to uh, like overplay this per, per se, but I honestly, honestly think this week's message and next week's message are maybe the most important messages that we're going to preach this year. Um, I, I really do. We've been in this series called Truish, and this week's message and next week's message, they're going to tag team together a little bit, uh, and uh, they're they going to kind of go after kind of a version of God and a version of the gospel uh, that is so prevalent in our culture. And, and we just want you to know what the real gospel is by the end of these next two messages. So if you can be back next week, um, that, that really would be good. I, I really do believe what I just said. I think these are very, very important messages for us to think through and to hear. So uh, let's pray together, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, uh, I want to thank you again for our dads. And I want to thank you. Um, I was really touched by, uh, by Brad's prayer, um, wishing you a happy Father's Day, because we want to learn, uh, as the song also talked about, we want to learn about how to be a dad uh, from you, because uh, you're, you're uh, as we're going to sing later, a good, good father. And uh, we want to learn from you. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. Um, I just pray that as we get into the message that um, this would be clear and it would be understandable, because it's really important. And so help me to be out of your way, that your spirit would speak to us. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. A uh, stand-up comedian is doing a photo shoot. And as part of the photo shoot, she holds up a mask of a severed head of the president covered in blood. Uh, outrage. Anyone heard of this news story recently? All right. um, outrage quickly ensues. 
Uh, this comedian's fired from CNN. Uh, she has several stand-up appearances uh, canceled in, in the wake of that photo shoot. Uh, a football player uh, is morally outraged by some of the racial tensions in our country. And for a while, he refuses to stand up and instead sits for the national anthem. Uh, moral outrage really ensues. A lot of public outrage ensues. So he makes the decision instead to kneel uh, during the national anthem. In- instead, it really doesn't quell the storm much. So more, more outrage follows. Um, a stand-up comedian who works for HBO, uh, while interviewing a senator of the United States, uh, drops one of the worst racial slurs that you can use, in my opinion. Uh, outrage ensues. People call for him to be fired. There's tension in the room, right? Because uh, you're wondering what I'm going to say next. And I want to talk to you for a minute about moral outrage, uh, the idea of moral outrage, because we've had three very powerful examples in our country uh, the last year or so, and it's all around us. Moral outrage is all around us. You see it in our news cycle. You see it on Facebook. You see it in our interactions with each other. We live in an interesting time. I would actually articulate to you, I pulled those three examples because they were some fairly recent ones, but I would make the argument to you that moral outrage in our country has maybe never been higher. And I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think there's a lot of reasons why we kind of have this moral outrage culture in our country right now. Um, I think one thing is we have more access to information than we've ever had before. Uh, and that's certainly a part of it. Um, we have more access to social commentary than we've ever had before. Uh, through social media, everybody has a voice. Almost every website has a comment section to any news article where people can interact on a certain subject. And so just that kind of social commentary piece, when you read an article and then you read the social commentary underneath it, it increases a sense of outrage. It increases a sense of um, moral outrage. We have much more digital communication in our country today than we do face-to-face conversation. And I think that when you're communicating digitally, when you're communicating online, I think, just as just my opinion, I think moral outrage is a lot easier to have digitally than face-to-face. I think when we're having a conversation online, it's very easy for me to become kind of outraged when we're having a conversation face-to-face. For whatever reason, we tend to temper our, our tone a, a little bit. When you're sitting behind a keyboard, it's just easier. I think another reason for moral outrage is that God has placed inside of each and every one of us a sense of morality um, and a sense of right and wrong. And let's just be blunt about it. There are some things that are worth being morally outraged about. There are some things that are right. There are some things that are wrong. And when you come across something that's wrong, it is good to feel a sense of moral outrage. As a matter of fact, God kind of placed a sense of morality um, and a righteous anger that comes from that sense of morality. God has placed in that inside each and every one of us. We see an example in the scriptures where, where Jesus gets very kind of morally angry about something that's happening in, in the temple area. Justifiably angry, righteously angry. And there's certainly a right way to handle that outrage. There's a wrong way to handle the, that outrage. But certainly I believe God has placed that inside of us. But I think there is another reason why our culture our American culture in particular, but across the world, honestly, why we are so kind of prone to a sense of morality and a sense of moral outrage. And let me put it on the screen for you. I really believe this is true, that we desperately want to not just feel moral, but we desperately want and even need to feel morally superior. All right? 
So I want you to think about that just for a minute because we're going to put it on the shelf and I'll come back to it, I promise. But I believe that there is a borderline desperation in our culture right now for us to feel morally superior. And I'm going to lay out why I believe this is true and and why I think it's tied to God and it's tied to spirituality. But I think in our country right now, there is a borderline desperate need for us to feel moral and for us to feel morally uh, superior. In his uh, groundbreaking uh, work uh, called Soul Searching, author Christian Smith coined a phrase that uh, at the time it was in youth culture, at the time uh, that he did the study, it was youth culture, but uh, all the youth that he studied are now young adults. And so I believe that what this phrase that he coined has found its way into every kind of fabric of our sense of spirituality as a, as a country. And I believe what I'm about to study with you, uh, I would believe it's the prevalent view of spirituality and of God in our country today. And here's what he called it. He called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralist, if you want to impress somebody at work today, would you talk about church yesterday? This is going to be a mind-blowing thing, all right? So is that we study moralistic, therapeutic deism. What do you study? God loves us, all right? Yeah, so, all right, so. Now, as I unpack this kind of view, and I'm going to try to unpack it with crystal clarity, this so fits into this series that we're doing, because even as I read some of the statements, there is going to be a piece of all of us that were raised and grew up in the church that are like, that's true. That's true. And here's what I would say to you. As we unpack this, every kind of tenet of this way of thinking about God and spirituality, it is true-ish. It is true-ish. There are parts of it that are going to be true, and there are parts of it that are uh, that, that are off from the, the real gospel and the real good news. And I really want us to, at the end of this, to understand, and the end of next week as well, to understand there is better good news than moralistic therapeutic deism. And and we're going to show you kind of what it is, but there are kind of uh, a few tenets. There are five of them that I want to kind of walk you through about what a person that kind of follows this approach to spirituality believes. And this is based on tons and tons of study uh, by Christian Smith and soul searching. Uh, Scott Monette, our youth minister, can give you even more resources uh, than that if uh, this is intriguing to you. But here's the first tenet is that there is a God who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. All right, so from the very first kind of tenet, here's what I would say to you about that, is that is true-ish. That I certainly, and I believe most of you do as well, believe in a God who created uh, the world. But here's where I would kind of part paths with this way of thinking. I don't believe that we serve a God, and this is the deistic part of this, I don't believe we serve a God that simply is watching over mankind. He doesn't simply watch over mankind. I believe in the the doctrine of this is I believe in a personal God. I believe in a God who is personal, that he is involved in our personal day-to-day lives and our day-to-day decisions. He's not far off. He's not hanging out in heaven just kind of observing what happens here on earth. I believe in a personal God that is active and involved and personally involved in his creation. Moralistic therapeutic deism, first of all, believes in a God that is kind of detached. He's just kind of watching what's going on. Here's the second tenet. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most world religions. 
So here's what I want you to see. The, the very next thing about this is that there's a God up in heaven. And he's kind of detached a little bit from his creation. And his chief goal for his creation is that we would be good and nice and fair to each other. Certainly as taught in the Bible, but also taught in almost every other world religion. And the highest priority from this perspective is that we would be nice. All right. So let me show you this quote. Moralistic therapeutic deism is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good and moral person. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, at work on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best uh, to be successful, that our morality is going to be defined by our niceness. And you say, well, how does this sense of niceness drive with the moral outrage thing that you started this message with? I'm so glad you asked that because there, there's a way that this kind of all works out, that we are nice within our tribe. Right? If you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, if you're in a certain tribe of thinking, that we're nice within our tribe. But the further you get away from the tribe and the further you get away from face-to-face interaction, you will discover that niceness no longer rules the day. That outside of our personal tribe, niceness does fall away, especially from afar. Now, here's the other thing I would say about this. All right? And we're going to unpack this a little bit more. But I would phrase... That the goal of faith, as you read the Bible, the goal of faith is not and should not be niceness. Right? Are we okay? Because right? certainly in many, many ways Jesus was very nice. But the goal of faith, I don't believe, should be niceness. The goal of faith is holiness. And those are not enemies to each other. They're not enemies to each other. We're going to talk about this more, more in a minute. But Jesus is leading us to that, that niceness is not necessarily the goal. Holiness is the goal. Let me give you the third tenet. The third tenet of moralistic therapeutic deism is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And I feel good about me by being good. All right. So the central goal is to feel good about yourself. And the way that you feel good about yourself is by being a good person. So I remember hearing a preacher one time uh, say, say to me that I don't like to talk about sin because I think most people understand that they are sinners. And then he went on to say, my role as a pastor is to lift uh, people up and encourage them. And I would say a couple things about that statement is I disagree with that today. Ten years ago, I would have agreed with that statement. I disagree with the statement today that most people have an understanding of their sin. The other thing I would say to you is, listen, I don't want you to leave Northwest here discouraged and depressed, but teaching on sin should never leave people discouraged and depressed because we have the good news. We have a Savior who that, that results in a forgiveness of our sin. So a good Teaching on sin should not result in people being uh, depressed and discouraged and all that. Here's the other thing I believe. Let me put this on the screen for you. The best way for me to encourage you is not by lifting you up. The best way for me to encourage you is by lifting Jesus up. Right? And that those are two very different things. There is a way to preach and encourage by lifting you up. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. Right? It's very easy to to lift us up, but I have found, and you might disagree, that the best way for me to encourage you is actually by lifting Jesus up, by making it about him and not about you. Tenant number four, 
God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to solve a problem. All right? And I honestly think this describes the place that our culture is in right now. And here's how all of these ideas work together. That if I'm a good person, and that is the goal of moralistic therapeutic deism, if I'm a good person, then when I have a problem, God will show up for me. But it is required that I be a good person, that I be a nice person, that I be a good upstanding citizen. And if I'm good, and if I'm righteous, and if I follow God in that way, then when I have a problem, God will show up and help me solve my problem. And so you've seen this throughout our culture the last 20 years or so. That, that when uh, 9-11 happened, that's one of the best examples I can give it, churches were full. That we were going along with our sense of trying to be nice, trying to be good, and then we have a problem, and, and God should show up and help solve our problem. The financial collapse of 2011, uh, that, 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 that you saw that again. And listen, I am so pleased that people came to church during, during those moments. But we just want to be grounded on what the good news actually is. Tenant number five, this is the last one. Tenant number five is good people go to heaven when they die. And this is the whole point of moralistic therapeutic deism is that it is grounded in and centered on me being a good and moral person. And here's my my question for today's sermon. Is the point of Christianity that I be moral? That's the question up on the screen. Is this the point of Christianity that Christians are good, nice, moral people? Is that the goal? Is that the purpose? Is that this thing that we're doing here? Listen, the dad in me really likes this. All right, today's Father's Day. The dad in me really likes this because I want my son to be good and kind and moral and nice. And you want your kids to be the same way. And we want our children to be nice. But here's my question. Is this what the gospel is? Is this what the gospel is? That you be good, you be moral, you be kind, and when you need God, he will show up for you as a reward for you being good and moral and nice. And I will tell you, most people, many, many people, not most, but many people will tell you that this is the way they view spirituality That the point of spirituality is to be moral and to be good. And can I tell you something? It is having a profound effect on our culture. See, in our culture right now, the outward appearance is that we're all nice. That that we're all moral. We're all good because we're supposed to be moral. But I'll tell you what. That when that conversation starts to take away back and you go to message boards and you go to Facebook and you go to comment sections. And we are more angry with each other in this country than maybe we have ever been. And people wonder, where has civil discourse gone? Where, where, where has civility gone? Where has having a good conversation gone? I'll tell you where it went, and, and I'm going to be preaching and pressing in on this hard. Where it went is that we bought into this idea that the goal of spirituality is to be moral, and God likes good moral people, and he shows up for good moral people. And so what happened is we are all desperate to be considered moral. That's why you, you, that's why you are seeing this breakdown in conversation. There is a desperation to be moral. And so we judge each other because I need to be more moral than you. We criticize each other because I need to be more moral than you. We, we don't see eye to eye and we can't just agree to disagree because I need, I desperately need, if I buy into this, I desperately need to be considered more moral than, than you so that we can feel good about ourselves and we can know that God is pleased with us. 
This has had a profound impact on, on the church. Uh, that, that I tend to be kind of a preaching guy, but I started noticing this probably about 10 years ago, is that, the, that preachers saw people's desperation to be considered moral. People, the preachers saw that people just want to be moral. And so all of the preaching of the last 10 years has moved to uh, four steps to improve your marriage, uh, five steps to get out of debt, uh, four steps to, to find forgiveness. And well-meaning pastors kind of moved to this pragmatic approach of if people want to be considered moral, then we're going to teach them how to be moral and we're going to teach them how to solve their problems in that way. I will tell you this has had a profound impact on end-of-life issues. The first cousin to moralism is anger, right? The first cousin to moralism is anger. If I feel uh, that I need to be considered moral uh, to be right with God, the first cousin of that is anger. I'll start to get angry at you. I'll start to judge you. I'll start to do that. The second cousin to moralism is doubt. That if this thing is all about me being a moral person and me being a good person, then built into that is I start to have these doubts about how good and moral I am. Have I done enough to be right with God? Have I not, uh, have I avoided enough things to, to feel secure in my salvation? I'll always wonder if I've done enough. I've all, I'll always wonder if I've done too much. And those doubts will always linger. And look at me, every person. This is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is not you become a good person. And if you are a good person, God will show up and solve your problems. That is not the gospel. It is not even partially good news. It's actually pretty bad news. And so I want to do something I don't think I've probably ever done this to. I want to just show you eight passages. I'm not going to preach on them. I'm just going to show them to you. Because I want to begin, before I move on with the message, I want to begin to press the true gospel into our hearts and minds. Because I'm telling you, in my pastoral conversations, moralistic, therapeutic deism is so entrenched in our society. Be good, be good, be good, be good. And then if you're good, God will show up when you have a problem. But outside of a problem, you really don't even need God in moralistic therapeutic deism. So I want to press the gospel into you uh, for a few moments. And I want to show you what the real gospel is, and then we'll talk about it. Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his, by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption found in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For what I passed on to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, which is us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in, God being rich in mercy because of his great... Love with, with which he has loved us, even though we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. 
Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having what? Forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Titus 3, 4 through 7, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His we might become heirs to the one and only hope of eternal life. Hebrews two fourteen through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of those things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those through fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he has, uh, he made, uh, Therefore, he made to be made like his brothers in every respect so that we might become he might become a merciful and high priest to the service of God to make propitiation forgiveness for the sins of the people. First Peter two, 22 through 25. Last one. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained. Uh, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. All right. Lots of scripture there. But you'll notice the commonality of the language in this text. The commonality of the language in this text is not my morality. As a matter of fact, most of the verses mention something about how we're not particularly moral. Did you notice that? That when most of the verses talked about you and me, the verses were talking about our sin and our shortcomings and all of that stuff. That I am a sinner, you are a sinner, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the verses that I just read to you that are on the gospel, don't focus on my work. These verses that describe the gospel focus on the work of Jesus. And this is the gospel. The gospel is not be good enough, be moral enough, and when you have a problem, God will show up for you. The gospel is that you are a sinner. You have fallen short. And in his great mercy, Jesus Christ died for you. He forgave all of your sins. And so you give him your life and you follow him. That is the gospel. That it is a focus completely on the work of Jesus. That he died for us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He took the curse for us. It is utterly and completely almost obsessed with Jesus. 
So that Jesus is the focus of and this main show of this thing called faith. Jesus is the focus of and, and the main show of this thing called faith. So let me, let me be clear. I'm preaching today, alright? It's probably Father's Day in me, alright? This thing that we're doing here as a church, as a body of Christ, is not us trying our hardest to be more moral. So that we can feel good about ourselves and morally superior to those around us, morally superior to those at work, morally superior to those in our community, morally superior to anyone. That is not what we're doing. This thing that we're doing here, all right, according to the verses I shared with you on the gospel, this thing that we're doing here is we are following Jesus. We are loving Jesus. We are worshiping Jesus. We are serving Jesus. It is always and forever about Jesus. Correct? So this is not about me me and my work to get things right with God so he'll show up someday when I have a problem. That is not what this is. This is me coming to him as a sinner. Me coming to him as a sinner. And him forgiving all of my sins. And you know what? When you have a problem, he's going to be there. And you know what? When days are good, he's going to be there. And you know what? Every day that you follow him, he's there. This is about a God that is not far off and not detached, but a God who is present and active and alive in the lives of his children. And so we follow him every day. Now let me just be clear for a moment. I think this is important. Because I, you know, whenever you start talking about morality not being the thing that, that Christianity is about, you start to feel this tension rise. So let me, let me say this for, uh, I'll put it up on the screen just to be extra clear. Jesus is going to lead you and help you to be more moral. Alright? Jesus is going to lead you and help you to be more moral. He is going to lead you to a holy place. It's not that moralism is not part of the faith. Moralism, is a cursory reading of the New Testament demonstrates this. Moralism is part of the Christian faith, but we must get it in the right order. The right order is I come to Jesus as a sinner. He forgives me. I commit myself to following him. So every day I'm getting up and I'm going to follow Jesus. He is going to lead you and empower you and help you to live a more moral life. We should be more moralistic. That is the right order. The right order is not I'm moral. I'm good, I'm superior, and so when I need him, God shows up for me. That, that is not the good news. It's not even anywhere even close to the good news. It almost sounds right, but it's not, it's not true. And so when you have this Jesus focus, that it is all, always, and forever about Jesus, this is going to lead us to some places as a people. It's going to lead us to some places that moralism will never lead us to. Let me give you a few of them. I, I could do this all day. Uh, I'm not, all right? Just in case you got scared there, all right? Repentance. So repentance is an attitude that says, when I become aware of my sin, with the help of Jesus, when I become aware of my sin, I turn away from it with his power and with his help, and I turn back to him. Uh, this is a thing that Jesus is always doing. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this is something Jesus does. He's laying things on our hearts. He's bringing things to our attention. He's asking us to turn away and turn toward certain things for his glory and for our good. Moralism never leads you to repentance. It, it, it doesn't. 
Because, as I've tried to make the case, we are so desperate to be moral. Because that is what everything is based on in moralism. We become so desperate to be moral that we will compare ourselves to whoever or whatever to to be moral. So in, in moralism, my sin kind of falls away. My sin falls away in moralism, and their sin increases. That's what happens when you fall into a moralistic point of view, is that my sin just kind of falls away. I'm not focused on that at all in moralism. Moralism becomes about their sin and their wrong because I am so desperate to be considered moral because I want to, I want to know that I'm right with God and I, I haven't viewed that exchange uh, through Jesus yet. We talked about this last Sunday. It is the greatest exchange you can participate in that Martin Luther described. That I give Jesus all of my sin and he gives me all of his righteousness. That's the exchange. So I give my life to Jesus and I follow him. And in exchange for that, he gives me all of his grace and his righteousness and his forgiveness. So in moralism, we're not becoming aware of our sin or turning from it. Sin just kind of sits there and festers as we compare ourselves to whoever. The nature of the church. In moralism, the work of the church, in moralism, the work of the church is to help me be a good person. Uh, because uh, if I, if, and ultimately, if I feel like I'm a good person, there isn't really a need for the church at all. And, and here's the problem with that. Let me ask you a question. How many people have you met recently that don't think they're a good person? I've not met very many, just to be honest with you. Everybody thinks they're a good person. Because in our moralism, we are comparing ourselves to whoever and whatever so that we can feel moral. Because that's what it's all about in moralism. And so church attendance, church activity and involvement only becomes a thing in moralism that's going to help me be a better person. And if I feel like I'm already kind of a rock star, uh, to be honest with you, I don't really need the church because I already am a good person. And as a matter of fact, when you talk to people that don't regularly attend church, that is in the top five of things that they'll say. That one of the the things, and this has just been the last five years, one of the top things they'll say is, I don't need the church, I feel like I'm already a good person. Uh, Because we have viewed the church as training ground for our morality. Well, if I already feel moral, there there is no need for that. But the goal of the church isn't to help you be more moral. The goal of the church is to encourage you and help you to follow Jesus, who will help you to be more moral. To know, worship, and honor Jesus at a deeper level. That I am most encouraged when he is lifted high. So what we are doing here as a church family is completely necessary for our spiritual development. That we are gathering together as a church family to know, honor, worship, and get to know Jesus at a deeper level. Because we believe that's what this thing is all about. It is all about following Jesus. And yes, Jesus will lead you to a more moral place. He will. He will. But it's by his grace and with his power that we go to that place. We, we, we don't want to get that out of order at all. And the last thing I will say about what comes with a Jesus-centered approach is living as a servant of the divine. When this thing becomes about me being good, the natural outcome is uh, the script gets flipped. And instead of me serving the divine, the divine should be serving me because I've been good and because I've been moral. And when I have a problem, he should show up and fix it because I'm good, because I'm a good person. When this thing is about Jesus and loving him and following him, following him, the script gets flipped back to where it needs to be. That, whoa, 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 Um, I serve Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't exist to serve me. Now, Jesus became a servant, and he loves me, but Jesus' role in this life is not to serve me. I exist to serve Jesus, and that only happens when it becomes all about Jesus. The outcome becomes that I want to serve him. So let me say something as I get ready to close. This thing called Christianity and faith, it only works when it's about Jesus. It does. I think it only works when it's about Jesus. Because Jesus is big enough and strong enough to sustain it. Um, it breaks down when it becomes about me. It doesn't do any of the things it's supposed to do when it becomes about me. The peace that Jesus gives when faith is all about him uh, becomes anxiety when it's all about me. With Jesus, it's peace. With me, it's anxiety. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I, have I been moral enough? Jesus brings peace. This thing being all about my morality brings anxiety. The The joy that Jesus gives when it's all about him, the joy that Jesus gives when it's all about him, becomes anger when it's all about me. And I become filled with this sense of moral outrage when it's about me. I'm, I'm, I'm outraged about everything uh, because I, I have a desperate need to feel more moral than other people. The hope that Jesus gives when it's all about him becomes fatalism when it's all about me. That I start to see the whole world as broken and bad and a really terrible place when it's all about me in my desperation to feel moral. And I believe... This thing, I, I know I'm, you know, I'm pressing in kind of hard. I really believe this has found its way into every fabric of our culture. That the point of Christianity is that I be moral and I be good and God shows up to fix my problems if I'll do that. That's the agreement. And that is not the good news. The good news is always, always, always and only about Jesus And I I grow in my love for him. I grow in my service to him. I I follow him. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He forgives me. He gives me his Holy Spirit so that I can be empowered to live the life he calls me to live. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Jesus leads us to righteousness. But he doesn't lead us there by ourselves. He's there with us every step of the way. He gives us his church to help us. We need to let Jesus do what Jesus does. But it happens, <clears throat> excuse me, it happens when this thing becomes always, only, and forever about Jesus. And that's the gospel. Because he is good news. He's good news for you, and he's good news for me. Morality, the whole thing being about my morality, I don't know about you. If I can com- make a confession on Father's Day, this whole thing being about me and my morality, that is not good news to me. Uh, that's pretty bad news to me. But a Savior who loves me, and forgives me, and leads me in paths of righteousness, that is good news. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Um, Lord, we do not want to become the storyline. We do not want this to be all about our morality and all about us being good, uh, because that's not good news. We can try as as hard as we want to do that, and we we will fall short, because all have fallen short. We need Jesus. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. We need his spirit. We need his example as we're trying to live uh, the way that he wants us to live, as we're becoming more moral. We need him. We desperately need him. And so, Lord, I want to pray for Northwest Christian Church and, and for everybody here as we are taking steps forward 
My prayer, Lord, is that we would be desperate for you. That we would be desperate for you. That we would recognize who you are. And we would worship you and love you and follow you. And that we would, that, that, that is the word, that we are desperate for more of you. And that we would follow you in that way. And Lord, I, I'm, you're going to do what you're going to do as we follow you. Grace, peace, mercy, joy, hope, forgiveness, and new life. And new life. We want to be moral. We do. But we don't want that to be what our faith, the only thing our faith is about. We want our faith to be about Jesus and let Jesus lead us where he wants us to go. Thank you for him. Help us to be desperate for him. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And uh, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you about Jesus. And uh, um, you can just spend some time. If, if you don't have a prayer request or prayer need or um, you're, you, you know Jesus, then uh, um, you just sing this song and um, ask God to continue to do a work in our hearts and in our minds to be desperate for him.